0: If you're wise, you'll run, dear, run. Because to stay will mean worse than your death.
1: He you float down there.
0: My name is Stephen King. Welcome to Filmstrip, and our views of selected works of Stephen King featuring Nick...
1: Kiss me, fat boy! ...and Jay... Sometimes...
0: This These podcasts will be spoiler-filled and contain in-depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. Every nightmare you've ever had, I am the worst dream come true. I'm everything you ever were afraid of. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504 C2, Title 17. I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And now, here are Nick and Jay.
1: Welcome to the Continuous Play Podcast Film Script. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of Stephen King's It. Part one, starring Richard Thomas, Jonathan Brandis, John Ritter, Brandon Crane, Dennis Christopher, Adam Farazel, Annette O'Toole, Emily Perkins, Richard Mazur, Ben Heller, Tim Reed, Marlon Taylor, and Tim Curry. Directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. Made and released as a miniseries on television in 1990, considered to be a big hit at the time, of course, has had its life on syndication and, you know, been on dvd for a good while now and they've bandied about for a while about doing a remake of this either for television or theatrical i mean who knows if they'll ever get around to it but one of stephen king's biggest books ever and one of his most uh, acclaimed as well and nick we've both mentioned in previous podcasts that we've read and seen this a uh, number of times
2: yeah correct yep i have uh remember seeing this back when it first premiered on uh, i believe it was abc is that what was the original? Yeah,
1: I think I think that's right. Yeah, yeah,
2: ABC, and then remember trying to read the book soon after, and being only man, what was that, like seven or eight when this came out? That really wasn't ready for a Stephen <laughs> King novel. Not to say that like you know it's very very his writing is extremely adult, but it is a little bit much for an eight year old to try to comprehend, especially uh, this novel. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I've seen this movie you know countless times over the years. Um, I think I've seen it on like Lifetime and. You know, I've rented it a few times off of Netflix and decided to check it out again for this.
1: Yeah, we, we definitely wanted to include it because it is one of the big ones. And, I mean, it's hard to do a Stephen King retrospective and not try to tackle at least one of the miniseries. I mean, that, that became a staple of Stephen King adaptation, particularly in the 90s it seemed to be that there was a Stephen King miniseries you know every couple of years and I I like to think the success of this one had a lot to do with that you get these veteran tv or you know b-list movie actors to come and do you know this sort of gritty dramatic horror flick on tv and they do it you know fairly well and it, it gets great ratings and people watch it and replay it and watch it and I remember when this thing came out man this was right before Thanksgiving in 1990 <laughs> and of course my dad being a big Stephen King guy we saw the previews for this the weeks leading up to it we're like we gotta watch that we gotta watch that. so this was back in the days when you'd set your VCR to record stuff on television <laughs> and I remember we wore the VCR tape out of this watching it over and over again and of course he read the book not long after and I was in my you know, teen years at that point and I read it not long after as well, so I've been exposed to this for a number of years, and uh, but you're the one Nick that suggested not only that we do this one but that we break it into two parts you know because it is a two part mini series, so why not do them together? Why break it in two pieces?
2: um, for me, I just figure it's kind of a story of two halves I mean, if you want to talk about just like what the story is, I mean obviously the first story is it has the adults in it, but it's mostly told from the point of view of them as children, whereas the second part is completely them as adults with a few flashbacks of them being kids. But I also, I mean, not to kind of, you know, show my cards yet, but I think both sto- both sides are very much tonally different. You know, like, I think the first part is more of a horror movie, where the second part is, I don't even know what it is. We'll get into it when we talk about it. But I just figured it'd be kind of nice to maybe kind of, like, you know, present them as two separate movies, because they were presented as two separate, you know, episodes or whatever. And they are, you know, feature length themselves, I mean, being, what, an hour and a half each.
1: Yeah, right. They, they are feature link uh, as, as each piece, and they were on separate nights. Like, one was on one night, and then two nights later, you got the conclusion. So it was you had to wait a couple of nights. You're talking about messing with the audience, man. I mean, you, you left you hanging at the end of the thing, and then, then you wanted to know what happened. And, then, of course, yeah, the, we will get into that conclusion as we get into it, I suppose.
2: The other thing I think is kind of interesting with it is just how closer the first part of the series is to the book as, as compared to the second part and I think that'd be kind of a nice little thing to also talk about in the second part is the differences between the book and the series whereas the first part you really there not that much difference I mean there is obvious I mean there is obvious differences there is stuff omitted but for what they have in here is pretty much from the book.
1: It's much more in the spirit of what the book is about. I'll agree with that, Nick. And I think we can point out some of those pieces as we remember them going through it here. But just to review this as, as a movie for what it is, I, I agree with your, your basic statement there. This is a tale of two very different halves here. And so I guess we should get into this first half uh, here. So let me load through the plot summary and then we'll get into the uh, discussion here. Nick, instead of going into an overly long and detailed plot summary, I mean, the the story of Stephen King's It spans from 1960 to 1990 and follows the lives of six males and one female, and we meet them as adolescents in 1960 who are terrorized by an evil being that they refer to as It in their hometown of Derry, Maine, and it often takes the form of a clown called Pennywise. And they emerge from 1960 having faced it in its lair and seemingly defeated it, but bound by a duty to return back to town should it ever reappear to kill more children and terrorize the town again. And sure enough, in their 40s, that's exactly what happens. And so they are forced to remember their terrifying past and face the prospect of facing him and destroying it once and for all and really the first part of the miniseries here is all the setup of these seven characters i gotta tell you man the first time i saw that and when all that went down i i I could not get enough of it. it. Just a really engrossing, little over an hour and a half tale. And I, I think I told you offline, we were talking about this, you know, we talk about movies sometimes and how long they go through the setup and everything. The entire first half of this is pretty much all set up until about the last 20 minutes when the kids go down in the sewer. But I'm amazed every time I watch this, how engaged I get in the first part of this story.
2: Oh, definitely. I really, really do kind of, I mean, I really do enjoy the first part of this. I would like seeing all the kid actors, because, I mean, how many times can you really say it? I think the kid actors are actually the stronger actors in this series. I mean, each one of them, you know, portrays their character very well, and you actually feel for them. I mean, a lot of times you watch a horror movie with kids in it, and you almost kind of want some of the kids to die because of how annoying they are. I mean... I even think I talked about in the uh, shining review about how I was kind of getting annoyed with the boy in the movie and everything but this one I really enjoy all the child actors. So I think that yeah. kind of brings me into the movie a little bit more and seeing each of their dilemmas and each of their encounters with it or pennywise or bob gray really, you know, really comes off real well and really really makes you kind of fear for I me mean, fear with them what's going on.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you, you've hit on something there. We talked about that in our review of Stand By Me, of how effective those kid actors were bringing us into that story, and we never get to see any of the other adults that they become except for Richard Dreyfus, Will Wheaton's character, and it is these kids that we have to really connect with, and I'll be honest with you, I think it all hinges on Jonathan Brandis, who plays the younger version of Richard Thomas's uh, Bill, the the lead character, and the one that we said was the the counterpart to the will wheaton character in stand by me the one that had had the brother pass away and then had the connections with these other people but still was deeply affected by that circumstance though very different reasons to how those things happened and i i think we have to put a lot of praise on his table here for The performance—it's one of the best performances of his career, and of course, you know he's no longer with us. He died at a young age, uh, also suffering from a lot of addiction and things like that. But uh, it's a really good performance, and of all the kids, he actually looks a little bit more like he could grow up to be Richard Thomas. You know, and which is funny because you've seen. We know what Richard Thomas looked like as a young guy if you've ever seen The Waltons. I mean, you you know what that is. And he looks a little bit like Jonathan Brandis. They do a good job of matching those kids up, and I I think it, his performance is great. But I also think the character of Bill Denbro is one that is easy to latch onto. Well,
2: oh, definitely. Um, even going back to Stand By Me, it's always kind of funny when you look at like the main character, and there is uh later in this movie in the story, he's telling a story about uh the fat kid and stuff and just kind of keeping his friends entertained and what does bill do he tells stories to keep his friends entertained so really i'm going to go back to saying that stand by me was kind of a jumping off point i believe for this novel i think uh stephen king whether he's admitted to it or not really took stand by me and then kind of threw in a monster and mixed it all together and that's why we came up with it
1: well, he he turned it on its head for sure. He put in a mystical element that wasn't in Stand by Me so much, and came up with this story and <laughs> this idea. and 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 we'll get into what it is and Pennywise and all that in a minute. But it can't be downplayed how different that is in the film versus the book. In the book, it's all explained. It, I mean, it lays it out painstakingly, page by page, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence. How. It really came and how it got there, and it doesn't give every detail, but you have a good idea of the It character. The movie keeps that so much more a mystery, and really up until the very, the it only reveals exactly what it has to, and I will say that that was a good choice by Lawrence Cohen and Tommy Lee Wallace, who adapted the thing. For the screen they did a good job of realizing we can't tell all of that story some of which gets really far-fetched you know and and really strange we can't tell all that so let's focus on what's the real story here and the real story is these kids and and what they become as adults and sort of this idea that as you grow up as an adult you forget things and what if instead of in stand by me you forget your childhood because you just grow older and have other responsibilities what if it is because of this traumatic experience and the actual moving away from the town blocks your memory of the events and what happens and all that—it's I mean, it's fascinating to think about. But it's all about Bill here, the the storyteller. And even though Mike's character is the one who is narrating everything, and it's really all sort of told from his point of view and his flashbacks, as we'll learn, it Bill is still our central character and our leader. And, I again, I liked him. I liked Jonathan Branson. I liked Richard Thomas well enough, too. I thought he he looked fine. I mean, he looks like, you know, a knockoff John Denver, which I think somebody calls out later on in, in one of the parts. But it, it I, I'd go for him. I mean, I, isn't it always a thing of Stephen King, though, that there's—well, it's not always, but there's, there's always a writer, it seems like, that's a big part of his stories, right? You know, and it's almost like this is Stephen King interjecting himself into this story, right? It's a horror writer.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Bill is here to represent Stephen King or how he views himself and how he viewed his youth or whatever. I believe that's basically what Bill's there to do. I mean, I think any novel you read, I think there's always like the central character that you're supposed to relate to. And this is the one that the writer related to. I mean, you see a lot, you know, like you said, with a lot of his novels, I mean, there's always a writer or someone in the writing. I mean, hell, even The Shining, you know. What was Jack Torrance's job. He's a writer. I mean, we're going to see it yeah. time and time again when we talk about more and more of these movies that there's always going to be a writer in here, or even if we do some of the later works, there's always going to be someone who's involved with a car accident after his uh, car accident. Or
1: this is true. We ever get around to you know if we ever come back to this series after we we've, we've done sort of our first run of it here and we catch it with Dreamcatcher, that one's the one that really spawned from that that book. But yeah, or that incident. But you're right. Let's talk about some of the other characters here. Ben Hanscom, that you know played by John. John Ritter as an adult also late John Ritter but played by kind of the you know tubby funny kid Ben Crane here as a young or Brandon Crane as a young man and th- this is the everybody has the story we told the story last time right you know you had this fat funny friend that grows up to be Jerry O'Connell you know, and I guess John Ritter's—I don't know if he's a, a step down from Jerry O'Connell or not in terms of handsomeness, but now in like the '70s and the '80s, hey, he was considered to be three's funky. company man. Three's company. Yeah, I mean, he was rocking sex, the house with man, two girls. Yeah, he was considered to be this sex object and stuff, and I, they. Talk about and play up the fact that he's this good-looking, sought-after, successful guy. And I, I'll tell you, of all of the adult actors, he's by far the best one, I think, of the men in in the crowd, I think, by far. I think Ritter does a really good job with this. Oh, definitely.
2: He's the, by far the—I the, think, when we, especially when we get to the second part, but— He's really the stand-above actor of this whole thing. I mean, just he's so much better than everybody else in the movie. And I don't know if that's that's really not saying a lot, but he's definitely the best <laughs> when it comes to the adults. And uh, I don't know, I've always had a little... I, I like John Ritter. I, I even like him in Problem Child. So anytime I see Ritter on stage, anytime I see him on screen, I'm just going to... I like him. I like Ritter. And I like that, Uh, you know, the fat kid grew into the, you know, the successful guy who, you know women tend to want to be with. I mean, the first thing we see of him is, you know, he's taking home an award, and he's bringing home some, you know, bimbo he probably just met there and stuff, and it's like, you know, it's very, very much a contrast to who he was as a kid, but, you know, that's kind of how we all are as kids is, you know, we all want to be somebody else, and I think it's kind of a neat character.
1: Well, you bring on an interesting point. Ben is sold to us as a kid, particularly as a kid with a big heart who is a real passionate guy, but everybody underestimates him. You know, and doesn't really give him credit for being a sensitive guy. You know, and one of the things he does, he writes a poem for Beverly. You know, and she, you know she doesn't even know about it. Probably one of the worst poems I've ever until heard much in my life. Oh, it's not nearly as bad as some of the poetry Spike writes in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I guarantee you, go check that out. And speaking of which, John Ritter was also in an episode of Buffy that Brian and I both really liked, but that's another story for another day, or it's actually a story in the archives of that show that you can hear about.
2: But, or, or, or before uh, we do the uh, Problem Child retrospective.
1: <laughs> that is an assignment for you and somebody else, because so, <laughs> I am not going to be on that show. So, I will bow out of that. Can I go ahead and say small popcorns and do not recommend? So, for all of those. But no, he's supposed to be this romantic who's seeking something and what you get from him when you, when we meet him here is that he may be successful, but he doesn't take himself really seriously. I mean, he drops his award and breaks it and he's like, yeah, whatever, you know, and the, the girl's coming on to him and all he wants is a drink. And then he gets the phone call and he has this flashback moment and he comes back and all he wants is another drink and he pushes her away, you know, and he just has this whole, he gets real insular about it. And you get the idea that Ben is a kid who, who, Grew up in his formative years in his uh, adolescent years without his father, and that's what we learned is that his father was shot down in Korea. It was an Air Force pilot, and the reason they moved from Texas to Derry, Maine, was because his mom was in between a rock and a hard place, and they had to go stay with her sister for a little while. You know, oh, I mean, the worst was,
2: sister in the world,
1: man. Oh, the worst sister and worst cousin in the world. You're, you're only here because mom's sister are Christian duty. I was like, oh man, these people are horrible. You know, and, it doesn't—it doesn't, it it doesn't count
2: kid. as Christian duty if you say it, man. <laughs>
1: exactly, man. That's kind of the point, bro. But anyway, go back to Vacation Bible School. But anyway, uh, yeah. But you, we feel for him, right? You, you feel for Ben because he lost his brother, and it's tragic. And he's also a stutterer. That's the other thing we haven't talked about. You feel for, or you feel for Bill because he lost his brother, and he's a stutterer. We didn't talk about that. You feel for Ben because. He he seems to be sort of neglected and unloved. I mean, and nope, I'm not blaming his mother for that either. His mother clearly is going through a hard time too. So he's sort of alone in this world, right? And he's the new kid in town. That's sort of the, the role he plays. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me,
2: I actually feel more for Ben than I did for Bill. I mean just seeing this kid you know he comes to school he's a new kid at school he's overweight he's getting picked on right away and then you learn everything about his dad and it's just like wow you know this kid really has you know you know he's really got it rough and then for him to be really just a nice kid on top of it i mean you could easily make him like the bad boy or you could easily make him like the troubled one but it's like no he's got a big heart and you know He's, he's obviously depressed about his dad and his situation, but he doesn't let it get him. He's not, like, depressed about it, though. You know, he's not letting it get down. And I think it's also kind of a little interesting contradiction. And you can kind of see with all the characters is how once they move out of Derry, they all, like, completely change who they are. But once they get that phone call, they go right back to kind of being who the kid was. Where, like, him, you know, like, growing up in Derry, he's, you know... The fat, lovable guy who, you know, has got a crush on Beverly, you know, he's probably going to be one of these guys who's always the friend, you know, never the, you know, the boyfriend. But he grows up and he turns to the exact opposite. You mean, he's bringing home a girl from an award thing and he's kind of like the playboy, bringing her back to his place. He's got the limo driver and then all of a sudden he gets the phone call and you can almost see him like, you know, kind of go back to who he was as a kid. And as we get to part two, you'll actually see that. He kind of goes back to being him again, and it's it's very interesting, you know, kind of a dynamic for all the characters. They all change, and then they kind of go back to who they were, just just from that phone call from Mike.
1: I think I think and I think you've hit it, and that's part of the deal is that they've all forgotten. This and because they were, and it's almost like, and this is really more prominent in the book is the fact that they were able to defeat this big cosmic force, they've and they all left it behind, they all became wildly successful, but they they all were missing something in their life, too. Like I said, you know, he couldn't really connect with anybody else, and he's an alcoholic, and all these other problems, but. They they're also all held to this big promise, you know. And in the book, it's a much bigger deal that they they make kind of this blood pact over it that they're going to come back and and destroy the thing if it ever comes back. And it's almost like the universe is saying, "Okay, well, we're going to you know let you go and be successful." But the minute that they get the call back from Mike, the lighthouse keeper, you're right. It's almost like he starts sucking his thumb. You know, I mean, it's it's the look on Ritter's face is just that utter horror, and it's it's well played. Again, it's just it's one of those things you really get into and start to dig we got to talk about the girl of the group, sort of the token female here. Now, I have a soft spot for Annette O'Toole, and always have and always will, and I stem it totally from the awful movie known as Superman 3, but the fact that she was sort of the first redhead I fell in love with as a kid, (laughs) and I've always liked her. I liked her in You told me it wasn't Kathy Griffin. It was not. It was. It was her. But it was because I saw her in Superman three, and then I stayed up really late and saw something I wasn't supposed to on late night cable. I saw Cat People, and if you've ever seen that movie, you know why I liked it, but and why she was in it. But I, I've always had this thing for Annette O'Toole. I like her. I watched her in Smallville. I, you know, I dig her, and I know she's not like this Meryl Streep actress, anything like that. You know, that's not what I expect her to be but she's very effective in the roles that she plays and she's just somebody that I've always gravitated towards and I also think and nothing against Emily Perkins who plays the younger version of her but they could not have found someone who acted less like or looked less like she would grow up to be an Ed O'Toole than her. Um, that, I mean, and having seen Emily Perkins as an adult, she does not look like an Ed O'Toole. Not even close. But beyond the actress, the Beverly character is another big trope of Stephen King. The underestimated, downtrodden woman who, when she finally gets her chance... Can run with the boys. She's just as tough as all of them. She's the best shot of all of them, and she's really the glue that holds them all together.
2: I got to bring up though. I mean, the first time we see a nettle tool in here, man, is that the worst on-screen kiss you've ever seen?
1: Uh, it's because the guy they paired her with and her have no chemistry together at all. Yes, he is the lifetime beater you know wife beater du jour i mean that they cast that guy perfectly but that is yeah that's the worst on screen he's he's like ever. the
2: guy from all like the christmas vacation the neighbor next yes. door
1: <laughs> yes he is todd yes oh. I agree. <laughs> yeah yeah he is he is a hideous betrayal. but you know what but of all the ancillary characters that get thrown into this movie that are from the book that one's pretty, pretty much dead on That is Tom Rogan from the book. I mean, he is exactly... Now, his demise is much different, but he plays it exactly like the book. They they transliterated that from the page to the screen.
2: I still remember, you know, even, like, reading the book the first time. It was like... The scene between him and Beverly and everything that kind of goes on around that phone call is really hard to read, just how abusive he is to her. And I got to say, too, as much as I was talking about, like, Bill and Ben, you know, like how, like, their characters kind of, you know, change a little bit, you know, like Ben, you know, changes from the the fat guy to the skinny guy who picks up the girls, and, you know, Bill changes from the stuttering kid to, you know, the confident author, you know, movie writer. She kind of stays within the same character that she was as a child. Because obviously this is like the old, you know, trope that you hear a lot of women fall into where they marry a guy just like their father, you know, and she obviously, you know, her father's abusive. I mean, they cut out the mother from the story because, you know, in the book she actually had a mother too, but they cut her out in in the movie. But she ends up marrying a guy or getting together with a guy who's exactly like her father being abusive and hitting her and just talking down to her like, you know, she's an animal.
1: But, what we get to see is when Beverly is determined about something, and we get to see this as her as a child uh, sort of un- unravel a little bit over a longer period of time than some of the other male characters when she gets her mindset she, and when she's going back to Dary she's like, "You better put that belt down and um, she just unloads on the dude, and she winds up throwing like an ashtray at him and knocking him out and I, you know and you get the and the best part of it, and it is the you know it's a funny. To look at sometimes, but if you're if you're following the story and you're really getting into it, when she just growls at him, like if you come after me, I will kill you. You know the way she says it is it's really scary. It's like you ever had that friend that never gets mad, but when you get her mad, it's like whoa. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, she really, and Annette O'Toole knows how to turn that on. She has that look in her eyes, just. Oh, and I guess you can really even say
2: bad. too, it's like, and maybe when she got that phone call, she went back to almost be the character that she was as a child when she was faced with it. I mean, the way yeah. you know she took charge, and the way that these friends, she's gonna really you know stand up for them, almost like a mother for her children. You know, it's like any other situation that involves her, she's gonna be beaten down, whatever. But when it comes to her, you know her kids or. Her friends, she's, you know, not one to mess with, you know, she's going to take care of her crew or her brood or whatever you want to call it. And that's what you kind of see here is when she gets that phone call and she remembers the promises she makes and she's going to go back there. And then you got this douchebag standing in his way. It's like, no, she snaps on him. She's like, no, you're not going to be in my way. I need to get back there. And, you know, he takes the uh, blunt end of the ashtray to the head.
1: But it's the Beverly character, like I said, that becomes the glue for these guys. Because even the ones that don't crush on her, heavy, and it's really Bill and Ben that that really have the crush on her. The other guys like her a lot. You can tell it's it's cool to have I that. Think, girl I think Richie friend. has a little bit of a
2: crush on her.
1: Oh, I think they all do in some way. But it's the two of them clearly are the in the lead of that that pack for you know her affection and the other guys are the you know they're her buddies or whatever i mean she does that whole bit where they all go to the movie and she's like oh i went on the date with all of you and it's important to know we need to throw this out here now one of the big stories in the book that they totally rip out of this movie and i know why because it's a tv movie and you couldn't do this now if you wanted to so there's no way they could have done it then. (laughs) is they get lost coming out of the sewers at the end of it and the only way she knows how to calm them all down is she has sex with all of them you know and it, it sort of she brings them all into manhood and it gets them all in the right mindset so they can find their way back out of the dark and it's the other thing that unifies them and they they have to kind of they play with that a little bit here that that's part of the undertone here though they never come out and say it but clearly she's the unique element that ties them all together um, at different times and Like you have said, when it is in their presence, all of them sort of shut down and wig out. Beverly is the one that seems to be able to rise to the occasion. It's like at the worst possible scenario, the the least likely of them is the one that sort of stands up. Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, you see that movie trope all the time where you got the person who's got the gun and they can't pull the trigger. You know, she's the one that can pull the trigger
1: only pull it, man. She can she can shoot like Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon, man. I mean, she's good with that slingshot. So, she's <laughs> like,
2: uh, we'll call her Beverly <laughs> Born or something.
1: I mean, she's dead out with that thing, man, for real. So, but it it is part of the story. That's you know that's her story. that it, it. Then they talk about it. it's like it has to be Bev. It's like it's supposed to be her, you know. And she certainly plays that. And you know, we talked about how it's the downtrodden characters that seem to rise up in the moment of the occasion. We got to go to like the wimpiest guy of the because everybody had this friend, right? Eddie, you know, the somewhat asthmatic um, mama's boy who pretty much is sort of run over by everybody in his life. I mean, he's just a big wimp because he's the smallest one of the group, right? He's the hardest one for me to really ever go with. And I don't know if it's Dennis Christopher and then the little kid that they get to play him, or if it's just the fact that I just don't, I don't know, I wasn't a bully or anything growing up, but I just didn't, I don't know, I I, I guess I had friends like this, but I, I don't know, I, Eddie to me is the character I just don't really line up with, of, of all of these, I don't really pay much attention to him.
2: Yeah, I ex- I had a friend though growing up that was just like Eddie, his name was Chris. And he was just a little small guy, kind of a little little bit of a wise ass, but he was always kind of a real, real, you know, you had to be careful around him. You had to be real jealous, you know, gentle around him because he bruised easy and stuff. So totally had a friend like this growing up. And I always kind of enjoyed his character. I think actually the first time I watched it, he was actually probably my favorite character to watch because he reminded me so much of one of my friends in school.
1: Well, and I say all that that I didn't go for him. You, you connected it to him. He's one of the more popular ones out of the series. I mean, that people say that all the time. And I think it's because in the sewer fight, like Beb, he stands up and, you know, grows a pair and becomes really courageous. And he does that twice, you know, it, in as it comes down to it in the confrontations with it. And it, that's the least likely suspect. But isn't that, again, you know, I go back to my silver bullet claim that this is what Stephen King does. He takes these kids that, should be nothings and that everybody thinks are just nobodies and he gives them these really important roles and these opportunities to rise to the occasion.
2: Ever, I mean you could almost say that every character in here is a cliche. Oh yeah they all are yeah. I Tell- mean you you, yeah, you got the fat kid who's you know not popular but really nice I mean you got the, the nerdy stut- stuttering boy you got the you know the class clown you got the little weakling mama's boy you got the uh, you know the Jewish you know guy who's you know kind of quiet but you know it's like you know he's like a boy scout style you know right I think he you actually is a boy scout. scout yeah yeah exactly. and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, and then you got then you got beverly who's the the downtrodden girl and then of course you got mike who's the I mean, he's the token black guy I
1: mean, he, he is and in the 60s that that was not even in maine that was not exactly the thing to be
2: yeah definitely. I mean, let's 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 talk about Mike. I mean, Mike is the only character who stays in Derry. And I think that's kind of interesting to his yeah. character because the first thing the first thing we see him as a kid is he's got the history of dairy. It seems like his dad or I don't know if it was his dad or his grandfather was like really into the history of dairy, and he made a scrapbook and everything. And it makes sense that he would stay behind and kind of be the one who's going to be the record keeper of everything. Going to be the one sitting around and I actually this is the first time I caught it in the movie was when the little girl in the beginning gets killed, you know, he's around and he's looking at it, and I never really knew what his profession was, but turn on, he's a librarian. Right, yeah. I, I, did, I didn't know he was a librarian in the movie. I thought, like, maybe he's like, a private investigator or whatever, but it's like, you hear the one cop saying, you know, hey, you know, you, you kind of got to get out of here, man. The chief of police sees he's going to get pretty mad at you. And it was like, oh, that's right. He's, he's a librarian. I completely forgot about that.
1: Yeah, and I love that, though, is that he's the guy that... Takes on the role and responsibility after they make the pact of you know if it ever comes back we'll come back that okay I'm going to be the one that stays behind and watches, I'll be the one that that does this and as is he unrolls more of his story and a lot of his really comes in the second part too is you know, why he made that decision you know but he's the one that's sort of holding the torch for everybody keeping an eye and making sure and he is in a lot of ways our private investigator i mean he's our eyes into this story all of this uh, is his recollection of it and i i like it i mean tim reed is a is an easy to follow character actor I and mean, he's been in a lot of stuff but the kid they get to play too i mean he looks just like him he's a dead ringer and for years i thought it was like his son or something you know <laughs> and so i mean i, I thought they made they'd pulled one of those you know those on the nose casting bits but the, i mean he. I like it. And I like the fact that there is, there's always one that gets, quote, left behind. But as you see it from Mike's point of view, he, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you know, you, you stayed behind and we left you in the dust and stuff. But he stayed behind because he wanted to. This was what he was passionate about was keeping up with this dairy disease, as it were.
2: You know, I think it's pretty obvious in this. I think he's actually the smartest one out of the group. I think he's probably the one that could have probably went on to become the most successful out of all of them. I mean, obviously, Bill becomes a writer. Ben is, I think, an architect and stuff, an award-winning architect. And, you know, Bev's a clothing designer or whatever. But I think he's the one that was really the most intelligent out of the group. But I think that part of that intelligence told him he has to stay behind. And it's so interesting to actually see that, you know, him staying behind he kept all those memories. It's like it's within Derry. And once those people left Derry, like almost their whole youth and all the memories stayed behind there.
1: And you're you're exactly right. It's like the, the, and it's more pronounced in the book, but they talk about it in this film too, is that it's like it has sort of put a trance on the whole town. And it's why the adults can't see or put together what's going on around them. And it's the innocence of the children that, recognize and know what's going on and that's you know on the other side is why it targets the children because they're the ones that believe in it and can notice it and ultimately can destroy it And i mean that's a trope to storytelling that's been since hansel and gretel right i mean that's been around forever and and continues to be so and i like how that sort of interweaves into all of this that as adults they've all developed the same fog too that they hated you know, in the adults around them, but they've done the same thing, and they have to have Mike fill it all in for them, and he's the one that fills them in, like you say.
2: And they kind of, they kind of dance around it in the movie a little bit, but the whole thing I think that they bring up in the book is that it can, you know, it can, it can can appear to anybody. It's not just children, but he chooses children based on their fear because he basically says that getting kids you know it's easy to scare kids and it is adults it's easier to play with their fears than it is adults and the reason he does that is because they taste better He's, he compares it to <laughs> marinating meat that yeah, you get you get it you get him full of fear and whatever it's just you know they taste better i mean we all heard the stare you know the, the phrase before that you know an animal or you know a dog can smell fear it's the same thing with him it's you know I think they kind of copied in the movie Jeepers Creepers, if you've ever seen that.
1: Yeah, yes, yeah, the good point. The more afraid you are, the better you taste. And yeah, that, that whole bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's exactly what they go for here. And, and it's also that it can control those that are weak-minded. You know, and that he, it, that's why he goes after Henry Bowers and his crew, you know, who Henry is a kid, too. We should say he's just a little bit older and is just nothing but a troublemaker. You know, th- th- he is like Chris Chambers, other relatives, you know, the ones that didn't make it out alive and didn't get their stuff together. You know, he's just nothing but a thug. Well, Henry and,
2: Bowers is he's you know. basically the same character from Stand By Me.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, he's Ace and and the other Chambers kids. Yes, you're you're exactly right, but not nearly. As I mean, well you know, I, if they were in the
2: same, if they, were, if they if they lived in Castle Rock, they'd all be friends. You know, these would be the guys who would yep. go around picking on kids and everything. And I not know. I'm let's just talk about Henry Bowers. I mean, was there you ever deal with a bully like that ever? I mean, the thing is, oh, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there's mean kids like right there, but this guy was homicidal.
1: Oh, he was, I mean, he was talking so much trash and whipping that switchblade out, and he's like, I'm gonna cut you, fat boy, I'm gonna cut you, you know, and I mean, just, I mean, just a thug, you know, and, uh, but the thing is, though, I'm a big fan of, like, true crime novels and true crime stories and stuff like that, Nick, and I, there, I recently listened to a story and read a story about a guy in Texas who was messed up on drugs and stuff who essentially escalated into becoming this huge bully and this thug. And he walked around with a switchblade, waving it in front of everybody's face, trying to scare them all the time. And all I could think of when I'm hearing the story about this idiot is Henry Bowers. You know Henry Bowers, and I, and I, I mean it's weird. You know, I, I'm this is a fictional character in a story, but there are people like that in the world, and that scares me even more.
2: Yeah, I mean I believe there are people like that in the world, but it just for being a bully, like almost like a classroom bully, it just seemed to almost be this like a little too much with them, because you know even like his friends saw it, like I think when he uh, had Ben to the side, and they're like, "You're not really gonna cut him, are you?" You know, right, and, and that, he, that he shows you gonna the
1: difference. Him. Well, and that's the thing, and thats it's not stated well enough, at least until the second part, is that Henry, in some ways, is under the influence and control of it. I mean, he is heavily part of its army and its use, um, its tools, if you will. The other kids are just idiots and thugs and followers, right? But he's definitely in league with the evil. And again, that's more clearly expressed in the second part of the thing, but once you know that fact and you go back and you watch this, it makes a lot more sense. And that's a little clearer in the book, but... Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, it's hard to think of—everybody knows a bully. It's hard to think of one that was, you know, a, a budding psychopath. I don't think many of us know those. I've, I've never known one, and I hope I never do. Um, but he, he, they have to have a foil, right? Every kid growing up, you know, had a foil, and, you know, there was always the bully kid. And it, what King does is he takes that ace character from Stand By Me, and he gives him a real menace and edge— That is an actual threat because not only these kids have to insulate themselves from the fact that they're sort of neglected by their adults in their lives and they're the outcasts of their classmates and they have this evil thing that's chasing them around that they've all encountered and they don't know how to deal with. But there's also this jerk (laughs) in school that's a very real problem to deal with, too. And I think the one that he picks on the most that gives it back to him the best is Richie. We haven't talked about the Richie character. Um, Beep Beep Richie Beep Beep (laughs) Richie Yeah Grown up Harry Anderson Nightcord Of course I know him from that A lot of his comic stuff But the younger version of him Seth Green Oz the werewolf Buffy for me And for you Robot Chicken fans He's one of those guys now Chris our family guy You know That's him All right? Dr. Evil's son. Yeah, Dr. Evil's son. Why don't we just get a gun and shoot him? I'm going to tell you, that guy is funny. He's always been funny to me, and he always will be. And you see little glimpses of that. In this performance here. I don't know how well he analogs to Harry Anderson or not, but Seth Green is funny. And Richie is funny. And every time Henry starts giving it to him, Richie just gives it right back. Because Richie doesn't know how to shut up. And you did the thing where they go, beep, beep, Richie. And that's sort of their way of telling him, hey, you've gone too far.
2: Right? <laughs> shut up, Richie. Don't <laughs> shut say Shut up, anymore. Richie.
1: That's their nice way of saying it. There's the nice way of saying that. But... That is Richie's deal, right? He won't shut up, and he—that's how he encounters it too. He gets in a fight with Henry Bowers, and he has to go downstairs, and the werewolf chases him. But I mean, I—I I liked Richie as a character. He's that smart aleck friend that everybody had—that one friend that always knew what to say. You always wish—I wish I was that funny.
2: Yeah, he's to me—he's the—he's uh, the habitual line crosser. I mean, exactly. <laughs> it's like you even see like they're at the movie theater and um little eddie excellently tops his you know knocks his popcorn on top of henry and what does richie do he goes i'm just gonna dump my soda on top of the guy and like that was just like i guess the one little part that kind of just a little bit bugged me in the movie was the fact that we're talking about how much henry is like a homicidal maniac and yet richie's always testing him and it's like dude he's gonna kill you man it's not like a normal bully where it's like you know what yeah, you're probably going to do this. He's probably going to end up leaving you alone because you're putting him in his place. It's like... Nah, this guy's probably going to find you and slash your throat, dude. It's like, stop doing it, man. That, that's why they say, beep, beep, Richie. It's like, stop. You know, dude, you don't realize. And maybe he's just stupid. I don't know. But it's... Well, or
1: maybe he just doesn't take anything seriously. And that's the thing is, we don't know much about Richie's home life from the movie. It's more in the book and stuff. But he comes from a, you know, like a lot of people that go to humor for everything. He's It's not a real happy place. You know, so... This is his way, his defense mechanism is just to make everything a joke, you know. And he doesn't take Henry Bauer seriously at all. Maybe he should, but he doesn't know that he should. And that's what makes it funny, is that he absolutely doesn't take Henry seriously at all. And every time Henry's like, you're all dead, you know, he's like, get some new material. You know, I mean, he just, it just calls him out every time. And I think you you said it best. He's the habitual line crosser. And that's why you like him. He's, he's easy to like for that reason, I think. The guy who is most definitely not Richie, you already called him the last Boy Scout, old Stan there who grows up to be Richard Mazur. I, I think he's probably
2: actually the one that represents all of us, though, when it comes exactly. down to it. It's exactly. Like...
1: He's more of the everyman. And I want to tell you, the kid that they got to play him looks exactly like my friend Dave from sixth grade. <laughs> and I used to tell Dave all the time, like, dude, you are so this guy. I mean, he look. I mean, the hairstyle, everything. It's, it's uncanny how much they looked alike. But I love that he is the logical everything has an answer, everything has its place, everything has its order. He's the last one to really accept the thing. But he's also the one that touches a part of it that none of the rest of them got near, really. You know, the deadlights and all that. And. He's also the one that cracks first under the pressure of it. I mean, he commits suicide rather than go back and face that all again. And it's, uh, I mean, it's really sad to think about how you see Stan and you see what you're watching is basically a dead person unravel in front of you. It's really, really, I don't know, it's it's the saddest story.
2: In a way, I mean, he's a victim because... I've always, and when I watch this movie again, I really watched his character, and he does not want any part of this. No. You know, like, when they're telling him all about it, he's like, no, this this can't be, you guys are crazy. And even when he sees it, you know, when they open up the book and it, you know, kind of comes out and is talking to him and stuff, he's like, that's not real, it didn't happen. They're all telling him, yes, 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 it did. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, good for him if he doesn't believe it. It's like, you know, let him be, but they, like, they pull him into it. And even when they're, like, going down to the sewers and it was like, you can totally tell he did not want to go and they pull him into it again. And it's like, you kind of feel bad for the guy because he's doing it because of peer pressure. You got all these other people who, I think out of all of them, he's probably got the most normal home life. I mean, I think he's really got a lot of stuff going on for him. You know, he's the, he's the boy scout. He's, you know, really into that and everything. And kind of Richie's kind of dragging him along because I think he probably, you know, probably the type that really doesn't have many friends, but he's probably fine with that. And yeah, it's, you know, they, they drag him along with everything and... I don't know, even, like, when they're inside that sewer complex, it was like, you know, they say, oh, you can leave now if you want to, and he looks, he goes, yeah, great time to tell me it, like, he's gonna go back now, and it was, yeah, I mean, I felt bad for him the whole time, because he's, obviously, the character doesn't want to be there, and, you know, you look at, you know, we, we don't see much of, like you said, Richie's home life, but it's like, everybody else has got a real shitty home life, and, I think for them, it's easy for them to put their lives on the line because what else do they have to live for? Right, exactly. It were him, I think he has a lot of stuff going on for him and everything. And, you know, even like when he's an adult, you kind of feel bad for him. it's like, you know, they're probably try- obviously trying to have kids and they can't. And it's like this guy just doesn't have any luck. And he's like actually probably the most nice guy out of all of them.
1: He's the most normal. That's by far. I mean, he, there's nothing wrong with him. He doesn't have any addictions. He's not a bad guy. He's not a crook. He has an honest living. He has a wife who loves him. He's obviously funny. You know, he's joking with her and all this stuff. And he gets this call. And he, I love how Richard Mazur does it, too, because the kid is always, like, tugging on his ear when he gets nervous or whatever. And he gets that phone call, and he starts tugging on his ear. You know, and I was like, oh, that's you know one of the all these adults do some little callback like that. And his is is the most effective. And you can see sort of the life sort of kind of drain out of his face. You know, it's sort of like he makes up his mind the second he's like, yeah, I remember you, Mike. Well, I'll have to see about that. OK, thanks. And he hangs up and it's like, you know, this guy's dead. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he's like, that was nobody. And he goes upstairs. And then, of course, his wife finds him. And what a horrific scene you know, and just in the bathtub, and just those, he scrawled it in his own blood on the wall. I mean, talk about messed up. I mean, that was messed up.
2: Well, he completely regresses back into his childhood form with that phone call, because he goes from, (coughs) excuse me, he goes from, you know, joking with his wife about sex and everything like that, to he gets that phone call, and he just all suddenly becomes like, um, um, yeah, you know, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll try, I'll, I'll try to be there, and it's, Exactly what happened, even at the end, when they all put their hands in. He was the last one to put his hands in. He's just like, Yeah, I guess, you know. And he resorts right back to that, or reverts right back to that. And you see him walking up the stairs, and you know he's not right. And it's like, you completely, you know, you understand after you see him, you know, with the, with Pennywise, he's looking right into his eyes and everything, and that he'd rather die than have to face that again, and it's a real fear. It's something I think a lot of us can understand and stuff is that, you know, there's stuffs in our lives that we faced or, you know, we think about, and it's like sometimes you'd rather almost die than have to deal with that again, and he's really just like the perfect example of that. And I'll go back to saying I just felt bad for him, I really do, and it sucks seeing him get killed because, or killing himself, it's heartbreaking, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. It is. And it's supposed to leave you on this real downer of a note, you know, and I, and that happens early in the book too. That should be noted that that's one of those things that it happens early in the book. And I think they made a good choice by saying, well, we're telling all these stories, we're going to end it on that because that's such a big moment, you know, and that, that the, this thing needed a break and that was a good breaking point to do it. And we've kind of talked all around it, Nick. We need to talk specifically about it. Pennywise, Dead, Robert lights. Gray. Well, you call him that. That's from the book, and people have read that know that. And if you've read Dreamcatcher or seen that, that's all a part of that too. But we got to talk about it. And really, what we're what we're going to talk about is probably the most memorable thing of this deal, and that's good old Tim Curry. You know, the Butler from Clue, Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Been in a million other things, right? He was.
2: I, he's, I mean, he's I, been in the greatest movie ever made, Congo.
1: Yeah, <laughs> he was also the uh, uh, duped to be Russian doctor aboard the Hunt for Red October. I mean, I've seen this guy. He's been in a million things. You know this guy? Everybody knows this guy. Home all Alone Two. Right? <laughs> Home Alone Two. I'm going to tell you something about Tim Curry. All right, I knew who he was, and I for years disassociated him from this role. I could not believe that this was him. Because he is so freaky as that evil clown thing. We praise performances here, but the best performance of the whole thing. Without him doing what he does in this, I don't think this works. I think it comes off as very lifetime cheesy and bad. But he is a menace every time he's on the screen.
2: Oh, I remember um, even just reading articles about this. When he was in that clown makeup, nobody would talk to him. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were that freaked out by him, and he's just perfect. And I really believe that you know we talk about like how they were talking about making like an, you know new adaptation of this, you know, whether it's a movie or miniseries. I think the real big hang-up is it is how are you gonna how are you gonna outdo Tim Curry. I right. yeah, he's just he 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 is Pennywise. I mean, you even see with you know you go to the library or you know you go to your Barnes and Noble or half price books and stuff. And you go look at Stephen King's It. You see his picture on most of the books. Because everybody associates this book with Tim Curry and his performance. And it's just, it's iconic. I mean, the, the, the role is iconic. I mean, you put him right up there with, you might call me crazy. I put him right up there with Jason and Freddy and all those guys. Because you talk to anybody and you show them a picture of it, you know who he is. They'll go, yeah, that's it. Everybody knows who he is.
1: He's one of the most iconic and easily recognizable horror monsters of all time. In that form as Pennywise the Clown. And it's a neat story how that came to be. Because Stephen King said, you know, one of the most frightening things to me is a clown. He said, and I I just remember seeing all these people try to drag their kids to see this thing that's supposed to be funny. And the kids are just freaked out by it. And all I could think was, what if one of these things was actually evil incarnate? And that's really how the story began. You know, was that I'm going to make the most evil thing I could think of and make it in the form of a clown because I don't know anyone that doesn't have a clown hang-up. And most of the people my age that do, it comes because they saw this or they read this. Oh, this,
2: this, this ruined clowns in the 90s. Bozo the Clown freaking was probably furious at Stephen King for this because I don't think he had a show after this <laughs> because I, everybody I know, Every, I go talk to anybody, and I'll say, "How do, do you like clowns? And like you said, most of them are going to say no, and I guarantee you almost all of them are going to go back and say it, or something stems from this movie, just seeing this clown. I mean, clowns are freaky anyways. I mean, it, fine, you got a pasty white face thing that's permanently happy. I mean, that's just oh, yeah. not, that, that's right. Just not yeah. right. And then also when you add, you put sharp teeth on it and make it a child killer, it's like, it's just, it's perfect. It's the perfect movie monster.
1: It is. And it's a great role that it, Pennywise is it's a lure for smaller children. It's what lures Georgie into the the drain when his boat goes down there and it, you know, and we learn it pulls his arm off, basically, which is just awful to think about. But it, it also attracts attention. Like you, you may be afraid of clowns, but when you see one, it, you have to kind of look at it and go, what's that doing? And I love how it can only do like masked forms of things for short amounts of time. Like when it appears to Ben and it's his dad, then all of a sudden it's got fuzzy buttons on the Air Force uniform. And then all of a sudden it's the clown again. Like it, you know, it, it's already having to put up one facade to be the clown. So it can only do the other mask, you know, temporarily, you know, because it, it can't really hide what it is from the children. And I'll I dig that. But uh, man, uh, what a. What a great performance, and what a scary, scary, scary character!
2: Oh, the uh, the the bathroom scene—that got me for years, man. It was like you know, I comes always, out of the drain. Yeah, just being like a little kid. Like I said, I saw this when I was what's going? Eighty-nine. I was six, seven years old when this came out, and. I I always had dreams all the time, or just you know, be in the bathtub or whatever, and imagining that these two little clown hands were going to come out, and all he's going to open it up, and out he was going to come, and it's just there's it something almost like Jaws to me, like how a lot of people didn't want to go, you know, in the water anymore because of that. I didn't want to go in a bathroom because of that. That's well, probably why that's probably why I was a smelly kid in mid school. <laughs> I blame it on this movie, man.
1: It's <laughs> it's all, all that things fault. You know what though? I I remember thinking that. I mean, anytime you walk into like the communal shower or anywhere, if you're like at the gym or whatever, I, I'm, it's hard not to go. Am I here by myself, and is Pennywise coming out of the drain? I mean, it's it's certainly a part of it. And now, part of that though too, I had a total flashback when all the showerheads started chasing Eddie into the corner. I was like, I am in Nightmare Elm Street Two Land here once again. I feel I felt like I was having one of those moments. And I don't know that that's what Tommy Lee Wallace was going for, but it's certainly one of the things I thought about when when I saw that. <laughs> But it is freaky, and the, all the different ways he appears, and the way he comes after the children. And I think one of the, the coolest things they do is when they let Tim Curry put on the fangs and kind of growl and do that. I mean, it's just the all the rest of it's the same. The clown's the same, but imagine a clown that has like a, a teeth, and every one of them is this long fang, like out well, of bright.
2: That's the thing you have you have a you have a funny, permanently happy face with sharp teeth. I mean. It's, it's, it's just a contradiction of itself and it's just so scary and even going back to that bathroom scene right when he gets those freaking fangs going on and like he looks up and then he looks over at him with like that just that look on his face like he's reading his mind and just figuring out everything that he knows it's like i even right, right now it's kind of giving me goosebumps thinking about it it's just it's just such a perfect perfect casting to such a perfect monster it's just great and i don't just you no, know, we could keep on going on about his performance and how great it is, but let's kind of talk about what the movie makes the backstory of Pennywise the Clown. It doesn't really give us any backstory, does it?
1: No, it doesn't that's that's what I said. Tommy Lee Wallace and Lawrence Cohen decided all of the backstory that Stephen King provides, a lot of which is still hard to understand, having read it multiple times, and I can barely explain it to you. It, they decided we're not going to tell any of that we're, we can't get into all this space monster, possibly from the origin of the universe. You know, th- they, they weren't going to go to any of that. It was just going to be this thing that had landed in Derry and had been in Derry for so long that it essentially just became part of the town. And that the only way to destroy it was for some cataclysmic thing to happen. You know, that it, that seemed to always sort of put it back in slumber. And what's in the book that's not in the film is that there's always something awful that's done by people that brings it back out of its you know slumber, whether it's uh, you know uh, a, a random killing or an accident on a road or you know a sickness or something like that. But yeah, they they totally gloss over the origins of it. And can I tell you, Nick? I'm okay with that. Uh, I I think one of the problems of modern horror is there's too much emphasis on the dang origin story. George Lucas again. uh, Well, and when you peel away, Rob Rob Zombie's done it. They did it with Friday the Thirteenth. Heck, Saw did it too. And I love that series, but they did way too much of that. When you peel back too many layers, underneath, it's just never as interesting as what I can make up on my own. And I like the fact that there's no like. I love the whole scene with the kids when they're just sort of sitting around going, the thing, and the, and they're trying to come up with it, and Bill just stutters out "It, it. You know, and, like, they just, that's all they know to call the thing. And they, they just pinpoint it that way. I love that. I mean, I, I love the fact that it is a big mystery.
2: Oh, I, I like, it goes back to Mike's character when they're, you know, they're sitting down after the whole bully confrontation, and they're going over his scrapbook, and they're just like, this thing's been around for 200 years, and it's just like, that's really all we know about it throughout the whole movie, is that it's been around for 200 years, and to me, it's like, you know, before reading the book, I always thought that it is basically just evil. It's just evil. It's just, there's, it, it has no beginning. It has no end. It's just something that's always been around. And it just happens to be in this area, you know, for the last, you know, however long. And it's just, it's just, there's nothing more to it. I mean, it's like Michael Myers. I mean, the the guy's just evil. There's nothing more. You, you can't really explain it. And explaining it almost kind of, it ruins a lot of it. And that's I really, actually, really enjoy that. I mean, the novel's a whole different beast and stuff, and what they do in the book and the novel's cool, and it all adds up to Stephen King's universe with the Dark Tower and everything, but I really like that there's really no explanation for him. The thing I don't like, though, is later in this first part, the explanation of how to kill it, because it completely comes out of nowhere. They talk about, like, oh, silver. Well, they don't bring up why silver can kill it. I mean, they, they, they don't at all. I mean, it's like, okay... There's the werewolf movie and where, you know, we all know silver can kill a werewolf, but there's really, they just also say, okay, silver's going to kill it. There's no reasoning for it.
1: Well, no, 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 there is, and it's not told, it's understood. I want to defend this because I actually like this, Nick. What they understand and determine and what they figure out and they don't explicitly say it but it's sort of understood is that this thing preys upon our very fears and it comes out and says that to them straight out as I'm everything you've ever were afraid of and because they know that they realize this thing attacks us through our imagination so all we have to do is believe in something that can kill it it 's the nightmare on elm street one ending it 's like i don 't believe in you anymore, and poof you 're gone freddy you know it's it 's the i 'm going to force myself to wake up from the nightmare. These kids decide together. We're going to take something that we know from our childhood, which is, at the time, monster movies, you know, silver kills werewolves, silver bullets kill everything. Uh, They decide to to (laughs) let silver is going to be our way to do it, and we're going to do it with a slingshot. And they all take turns shooting rocks, and of course it's Bev that can do it, and they decide, okay, we're full on with this plan, this is going to work. And it's because they believe in it that it... Works. It's it's the same reason Eddie goes, this is battery acid, and it's just his camphor water in his aspirator. You know, it, it's because he believes it wholeheartedly at that moment that they turn its power on it. That's what happens. And that that I dig. That is a cool trope, and I love that. I go with that every time.
2: See, the way you explain it is fine, but I cannot pick that up in the movie at all. Oh, I it think it's hit. right there. I, I can never, I don't ever see it. I I I get it from the book, and if they, why can't they just have a throwaway line in there, just going, you know, you know, hey, you know, this thing's using our our fears, our mind against it. Let's use ours against it. Let's turn it well, around. They
1: say it. that they just don't come out and say that. They they have that whole conversation after it appears in the book or whatever about like this thing can be whatever it wants well, then fine, we can decide to use our... If it has control over our minds, then we can, can decide to do something about it. Like, the whole idea of if, if it's going to attack us through our imagination, then let's just turn that on the thing. Like they but, they all decide but they don't ever say it, it though. Well, no, they, they don't, don't come ever. out and explicitly say it, but that's, but that's the beautiful part of that? it. No, no that's the best part. I don't, that's, don't need that explained. Like that to I me, need that. I know. Oh, that. I see. No, if they had come out and laid all of that out... No, this is the... Okay... This would have been like in Lethal Weapon. It's standing in front of the Christmas tree. Instead of going, we're gonna to have to get bloody on this one, Roger. If you know, he goes, "Well, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna get 50 yards away and I'm gonna snipe all these dudes, and then you're gonna get a grenade." Like if he spelled it all out, it wouldn't have been nearly. Well, as I'm not cool saying you have to, to, to spell it all out with them
2: going, "Hey," and you're gonna use the inhaler as battery acid or something. No, that's not what I want. <laughs> I just want them to go, you know, like, "Hey," you know, this thing's been prying on our fears. It can read our mind. It's manifesting it. Let's turn it around on them. They did it in you know Nightmare on Elm Street three. Where they, you know, they basically say, you know, hey, yeah, <laughs> the dream he, warriors. he's exactly. in our dreams, yeah. and he's using, you know, he's able to do whatever he wants because he's in our dreams, but guess what, we can do it too. And just and just something like that where, you know, they could say, you know, even when he brings out the silver earrings and stuff and being like, so I'm going, what, what the hell is that going to do against them? And being like, you know, he's, if we believe in it, it'll work. We, it's, it's you know, the power of all of us, Lucky Seven, the Losers Club, all of us together, all of us together, because we've all faced it. If we all come together, we can make this work. And I think that even would have been a little bit of a stronger thread to go back to uh, Stan, to even go back to Stan, to be like, we need you because of this, because we're going to be stronger as a group. We're all together. We're going to be stronger. We don't know if we can do without you. And I think that would have just been a nice little stronger, you know, subplot to the whole thing is how that can work. And I just, to me, it just kind of like comes out, it's like, oh, Silver's going to kill it. That's just, How it always comes off is just like it's just a random tidbit, just like you know, just 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 like it's like almost like a plot hole in a lot of movies where it's just like, oh, well, we got this monster, and now suddenly, yeah, we're gonna do this because we say it's gonna work. There's no x, there's no explanation to it. And I just wanted something a little bit more. I see what you're saying, I get it from the book, and I'm bringing a lot of my knowledge from the book into the movie, but just watching the movie, it's own, it's just it's not all there. I just another line or two could have just brought it home.
1: Well, and I get your point, and I, this will be an interesting conversation to revisit in the second part, because I think one of the problems with the second part is they do bother to explain everything as much as they can, and I think it takes away some of the, the magic of it. But I, w- I do want to say this, as much as I liked Pennywise and I liked the whole trope and everything, there's one part of it that I think is poorly explained and, and is I, I never really buy it, and it's the deadlights. You know, now they go into really the first act of the the second part of this is about the, you know, they talk a little bit about it, but they never do a good job of explaining the deadlights. And I know there's really no way to explain what that is, because in the book, I couldn't tell you what it is. I mean, I, again, I've read it you know many times and I, I still can't I couldn't draw it. I couldn't describe it for someone. So the fact that they got like some strobe lights and some pipe and, and some weird sound and made it happen is a testament to them. But that's the part of this that I I have the hardest time going with. I don't get what happens when it is in the deadlights form.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't get it either. It's it's kinda weird. It's almost like how do you describe the deadlights? I mean, it almost kinda I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but like remember the Simpsons episode where they're having uh or where um Milhouse's parents get a divorce and they're all asking uh Milhouse's dad to draw dignity on the pick they're playing Pictionary? And like how do you draw Dick Indiana on, on, a, on, a, on a piece of paper? <laughs> he can't do it, and it's just like it's almost. I think what Stephen King's trying to get at here is like it's something beyond what we can comprehend, and they kind of try to show it in the movie. And to me, it always came off like a flying. I don't know, alligator stomach is what it kind of looked
1: like. It's yeah, it kind of comes off that way. It's like this, and it it consumes one of Henry's goons. You know, just right there in front of him. I mean, folds the dude in half, yeah. which is and I, one, of the, one of the weirdest. I think, I think
2: something better that they could have done is not even to have that and just been like the deadlights of something inside of him you know, like something behind his yeah. eyes, you know, he looks into you and they kind of show that in part two, a little bit with the eyes and stuff. Yeah,
1: you're, you're right. And I, I when they do that, I'm going to say, that's what it should have always been. Yeah. At this point, we, we all get that this is a thing and that it's, it's much more than just Pennywise, but I would have bought it had Pennywise just come out of the ceiling and, you know, swallowed up in a big flash of light, swallowed up Henry's butt. Yeah. Right. Like I, I would have bought that. That would have worked. Yeah, I, you know, and and turned his uh, his hair all white and stuff. I mean, that I I would have gone with that. The, that's the weakest part of the thing to me because again, I think it's the most inexplicable part of what King wrote too. Is I don't even know if he knows. No, I don't it think is. he knows. It's just it's just one I of think, those. I think things, it's almost, like, almost you know? like saying
2: you know what's a soul. You know, it's like can you draw? Can you, hey, yeah, anything? exactly. I think in a way the Deadlights is Pennywise's soul. I think in a way it's 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 what he is, and you can't really explain it or show it, and I think by them trying to show like when the kids are all huddled around and the thing, you know, comes up above them and everything. It's just like, I was wondering, it's just like, what is that thing? You know, it it, it doesn't come off as like what they're explaining it to be when they're trying, when they're trying to explain what the deadlights is. It's like, to me, I always said, I always thought, you know after watching, I'm like, is that like the spider or something? Is it walking above them? Or is he like a flying turtle? I'm like, I don't know. You know, maybe that's what it was. Maybe it's just looking at yeah, a turtle. Maybe it's like a little bit of a nod to the novel or something like, oh, there's a turtle. <laughs> well,
1: that's the thing. But yeah, they never explain. It. And it's almost like in its purest form, it is just that pulsing light, you know. But at either rate, that's how it all goes down but how, what did you make of the of the fight down in the sewer and the way all that goes and everything I I like it I mean I think to me it's when the story really rolls and has its its best moments is when the kids are chasing the thing down there and they all have to confront it in one way or another and they have to deal with their you know their biggest temptations you know Georgie and my dad tell me to go home and the werewolf and all the stuff and that it's Stan who's the weakest link of the group you know and he's the one that almost gets
2: yeah, I, I gotta ask you though, that place they you know they're always showing, you know, like, you know, Ben goes out there and he sees his dad and you see that building. What is that building?
1: I, that's what I want to know too if it's like the sewage processing plant or what that is. Because it's, it's not far from where the kids play. It's known as the barrens, like the old wastelands or whatever. I'm like, you let the kids play near the sewage, do we, in Derry? You know, I don't know. I, I've often wondered if that's like the water treatment plant. Is anybody or what? working there? I, I anymore don't know. Is it abandoned and, you know. That's what I want to know too. It's almost like it's just this old, abandoned, spooky building. That's just it's just a bunch of drains, right? It's the it's the Sunnydale sewers, <laughs> you know, for for Buffy fans. I mean, really, it it's like there's all these catacombs, but nobody's there, you know. And it I don't know. It it is the weirdest thing, and I and I've often wondered and attributed it to what if that's just its hiding place, and because it's so strong and it has such a hold over the town that it can kind of keep itself hidden there and and keep all that going as part of the facade. I don't it's, know. It's a
2: cool looking place though, man. It's like, I don't know if that's actually a real place or if that was just like some type of, you know, miniature model that, you know, they, they dropped in the back of there. It's, it's really cool looking. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, when you look at like, all oh, like, you know, bringing in the book stuff and everything, I mean, it's very much, it could be, it lives in there and it's able to influence people not to go in there and leave them alone, especially when it's hibernating and everything. But you know, going back to what you're talking about, yeah, it's it's a very cool scene in there. It's also very freaky. I mean, you, you see him walking, it's all damp and watery and all dark and everything. And it's like, yeah, this is like an Alien 3,
1: man. It's like it's in the basement. You know, it's like, that's of
2: course, that's where it is, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it it, it is that. And uh, that's the... <laughs> I think that's part of the allure again. Part of the mystery that I like of it is that it's not explained. It's just it is what it is, you know, and we just have to go. with it. And I mean, what better than a dank, dark place for them to all to have the big final showdown? And for them all to show up and then, of course, you know, to get the, the death blow in or seemingly think they kill it. But I'll tell you the thing that always intrigued me the most, and it's because I had seen the cover of the book. And the original cover of the book is a, a boat going down a storm drain in this, like, almost three-pronged alien lizard hand sort of grabbing the drain. And what the hand becomes and slides down the bottom of that drain at the end is essentially that that picture again. And I, I've i always wondered, uh, what is that? Because we never see that again. That never comes back. It didn't even come back in part two. you know. And I'm I've always been intrigued by that little thing. I, I just think it's one of the best little props ever.
2: Yeah, I think, I don't know what it is. I'm just, obviously, I think it might have just, you know, because it's like a shape shifter and stuff, it might have just been throwing out random shapes or whatever. But I even got to bring it back up about the sewer alert. to go back on the, that tangent. It's like, this thing's like an obviously like a super powerful being. Why the hell does it live there? You know, it's like I'm gonna live in I'm gonna live in the really dark, cold places. Like, dude, you could be living like in a mansion, you know?
1: Maybe it's not like Randall Flag, and it doesn't need all the, the show, you know? Maybe the thing, uh, you know, likes to lay in the low and, and have a good hiding place. I don't know. That's a good good question. I mean, again, this is part of the thing that it, it's just one of those interesting questions about the the thing that are there are no answers to. It it could be anything.
2: It's a cool error, definitely. It's a cool error. It's. I always thought too when, uh, you know, Beverly hits it in the head and the light comes up and everything that you know, they they try to stop it from going down there, but it's making those noises. I mean, it's obviously making those noises to lie to the kids. I believe you know, it's like trying to make them think that it's dead, so they don't go, so it doesn't go after them. Or they don't go after it. Is that what you got from that? Right.
1: Oh, I yeah, I've and having known the story now, I always took it as that's it going. Okay, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm. Play, it's playing dead him. And I do think it is injured and it's going into its, its hibernation or whatever, but I think that it's it's also not completely and totally dead. So it's it's giving them the fake out. And I think Bill is the one that knows that for whatever reason in the movie. Now in the book, it's, it's much easier to understand why he might understand that. In the movie, you don't know that, but it, he's the one that's like, I, you know, you can get that he doesn't believe that it's over. You know, and he's the one that comes up with the you know, swear to me. If it ever comes back, we'll we'll come back and finish.
2: Yeah, he was it was kind of coming off like you know I want its head. I want him to be able to put its head on a freaking pike. You know, it's 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 right, let's go get it.
1: And that's exactly how it is because I mean he's the one that again he's the leader of the group, and it's he's the one that rallies the troops at the end. So yeah, I can buy that. I mean, I would I would believe that. So. <laughs>
2: I even got to think, man. It's like hibernation, man. This thing, they, Jeepers Creepers, really ripped this movie off, man.
1: <laughs> My God, dude. Just well, someday when this. we someday in our Jeepers Creepers retrospective, they are have making to a third one, that, so it might come up. They they are indeed, so that you never know when that one will come up. I I actually own the two disc, uh, one and two, but I've never actually never seen part two. I I will confess to that. My wife bought that for me, and I've only seen part one. I've never seen part two, but maybe someday we'll <laughs> Mr. get to that. Well, yep. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. Well, because we're splitting this, I, I think we're going to tune in next week before we do popcorn ratings, because I don't think you can ever just watch half of this and be satisfied. Oh, I, I would do so. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't tip your hand too much. So we're, we're going to cut it off at this and we'll be we'll do a to-be-continued here for our second part of the podcast, part two, and we'll do a full wrap-up. And if you want to, we can we can rate the, the parts individually there. But before we play the hand on, on that, we'll do that in the next episode I think that's, that's the way to split this one up uh, but it's been an interesting discussion and look forward to continuing and concluding this one with you next time Nick folks you can check out uh, more entries in our Stephen King retrospective um, on or our selected works of Stephen King retrospective on our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies you can also find reviews of other things that we've done there in the archives I mean we've done the Bourne series the Alien flicks Go way back we've done like romantic comedies and you know, Brian and I've done wrestling movies like Ready to Rumble and No Holds Barred and you know, we've got all kinds of stuff in there so the Leprechaun movies I mean my goodness we, we've got the variety check it out let us know what you think find us on Facebook and Twitter and you know hey we threw out a lot of ideas here in this let us know what you think do you dig the Deadlights what do you read some of this stuff as if, if you have interpretations let us know what they are we can interact with you we always enjoy doing such so until next time for Nick I'm Jay thanks for tuning in to Film Strip.
0: Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504, C2, Title 17.